I do have times, not regularly, but say every couple of weeks or months, or especially in the winter, where those goals that you're working towards of major championships, say Olympics, for example, this year, or in another year it could be European championships, or you might have a couple of competitions lined up in the summer. And it's usually the summer where you're aiming towards, but you're training from about September, October, through the winter. And that's where, that's where you really start to question. Mm. On a miserable day where it's raining, it's windy, it's cold, there's sleet, and you're like, why the hell am I down here doing? Yeah. Three by 600, 600 meters, 500 meters, 400 meters, 300 meters, or whatever it is, or going out into the hills in Kratlow and running up a load of hills, and I'm like, why am I doing this myself? <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. But I... for me, I would have a lot more of those thoughts if I was on my own. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme, what's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Hello there and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. In case you don't already know, Thomas Barr, my guest today, is one of Ireland's biggest medal hopes heading to this summer's Tokyo Olympics. His event is, it's safe to say, ridiculously difficult, <laughs> ridiculously technical. It's the 400 metre hurdles. But I'll tell you what, this guy can fly. He's broken every national record at that event and come heartbreakingly close to winning a medal at the last Olympics. This time he's going to set things right and this week after a meet in Finland where he won in a time of 48.39 and clinched his official Olympic qualifying time he gave me the opportunity to sit down with him to talk about what lies ahead, how he got to where he is, things like Naomi Osaka and what we ask of our athletes today and lots lots more to hear the full extended uncut ad free interview simply head over to patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad it's how this show is funded for as little as a five or a month you get access to all our episodes from the last eight years four weekly episodes including sonia sullivan on the irishman running abroad that's right personal coaching from sonia sullivan and detailed episode notes for our members there just for the price of a cup of tea and a bun each month you can keep the show going and get an awful lot more quality listening to accompany you across this summer but enough of my yapping let's get to it it's the thomas Barr episode of an irishman abroad tom Barr, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on irishman abroad especially at this moment in time tell me how's the head right now i mean i'd imagine that that is that's an ongoing fitness battle as well in its own right absolutely yeah yeah it's uh you know what yeah you you got me at a at a good time i think 
I'm uh, in the middle of my my first kind of competition block, and I've run extremely well considering you know you've had a lot of uncertainty and stuff in the last couple of months so i've come out and run my my equal third fastest time there a couple of days ago so the moment the body is good the head is good so it's all kind of building up nicely now towards the uh the big games which is uh in uh the end of august or the, the end of july it, it, like i Started with the head game question because for me, and I'm obviously not an elite athlete, but for anyone who finishes fourth at an Olympics, you know, to the outsider, you would think, oh, God, you have to make peace with that. And that must have been hard to take. But you seem so resolutely positive that you were like, oh, my God, I can build on that. That's something amazing. I can build on my best time and all the rest. Was there any part of you after that that was like balls? Oh, that's hard to take. I think maybe there was like point, there was a fraction of a percent was probably a bit disappointed. But I mean, for me, I suppose if I go into a little bit of the history of, of the year that I had in 2016, it was completely positive in the fact that 2016, while you look at it from the outside, was my best year on the track without doubt. You know, I finished fourth. I ran a massive, massive personal best. To be honest, even if I'd had the perfect year and finished fourth, I would have still been happy. But I was injured for a couple of months, mm. uh, probably nearly nearly 11 weeks yeah. in prime sort of uh, competition prep time uh, in March or through March, April. So that kind of Olympic dream that I had was slipping away. And I just thought if I can get myself on the plane, it'll be a miracle at, at, a, at a certain point. And, you know, it was really, while, while on the outside, it was my best year. And, and in the backstory, it was 100% my worst year. Physically and mentally, it was the toughest year. So to come from that, to pull off, getting into the final and getting a fourth position with a fast time, only 0.05 of a second off a medal. Like there are times when I look at the race and I kind of think, God, <laughs> I was so close, so close. It's ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, and even you know the, the facts and figures that if it had been any other Olympics, I would have medaled in the last, uh, you know, four different Olympic cycles. But no, I, 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 there's barely even a fraction of a percent of me that kind of thinks, of the negative things, I only just try and take the positives. Like if, if, if I often say if my career was to end at that and that was the highlight, I, it's a very high highlight. So uh, mm. no, I don't have any, um, any uh, negative thoughts really. So like I, I totally aspire to that and loads of our listeners and loads of people that, you know, gravitate towards elite Irish athletes like this will, you know, view your, activity with in the same way as they would Sonia Sullivan, our uh, regular contributor here on Irishman Abroad, to gain a perspective on their own challenges in their own lives. And you must feel that now that people go to you and see you now as an inspiration. That must come with a certain amount of pressure because yeah. from your perspective, you're just getting on with what it is you do. Yeah, it does. You're right. It does come with that added pressure because I'm trying to, I'm only human. I'm only trying to, to go out there and do the best that I can. I'm trying to train as hard as I can to then pull off the results. And even if you've trained extremely hard, if you can't get into that racing rhythm or you, you know, you, there's a lot that has to feed into everything kind of that you've done behind the scenes, all the training, and then actually 
you know, putting it to use in a competition. It's, it can be very difficult to get it all to come together at the right time. So yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes on, and it does come with that added added pressure. But as they say, with great power comes great responsibility, and um, and that's just it's it's one of the things that when you start to get high up in in athletics, or you start to do well in any sport, and you start to become a prominent figure, say in the public eye, there is that added expectation. And there were times when I bowed out to that, and and I let it get the better of me. But I learned very quickly that it's all kind of just excess noise, if you like which is kind of superfluous to getting out there and actually running. So once I don't let that get into my head or set in or, you know, let it negatively affect my performances, you know, at the end of the day, all I have to do is go out there and run one lap with 10 hurdles, which sounds simple. But once I can do that with, with, with it in the mind that that within my mind, that that's all it is, no matter what the event, that's what I always try and bring it back to. And to be honest, I absolutely love, I thrive off of and I get a really good buzz off of the fact that like that it's only one lap with 10 hurdles whether I'm doing it at training in Limerick or if I'm in you know a massive stadium somewhere across the world the fact that so many people can can take excitement enjoyment and interest that they can be they can be critical of it they can you know get involved with it that I, I love that and I thrive off of that and when I'm especially when I'm running well I love like even in the last couple of days I've gotten a huge amount of well wishes and a great response online from my performance in uh, in Turku where I ran the the qualifying standard for Tokyo so and I love that I love going on and seeing you know people taking an interest and my phone was hopping for a while and it's it's great that that, that there is that support because it's I've been out on on and traveling for about two weeks nearly now and it does get quite lonely because I'm literally just, especially in COVID times where you're kind of stuck to your room, stuck in your room. And like at the moment now, I'm I'm here in Sweden for six days and can't really leave the room only for food and training. And there's only so much training you can do in the day and so much eating. So yeah, well, uh, it that's is nice something to I want to get into because, you know, we're obviously speaking uh as a result of our mutual friend Dara Bambrick, who has put together and made this incredible Horizon Tokyo show, which follows nine athletes on and off the track for three years as they try to qualify for the Olympics in Tokyo. And it's a it is a real inside look into, without doubt, the most turbulent Olympic cycle in modern history. And I can't recommend people enough this show because for for me as a sports fan, but also as someone who's obsessed with backstage, I've always been. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I love I loved the last dance getting into the Bulls dressing room. That was, to me, the underneath the hood part of the vehicle that really, really blows my mind. So maybe you can give us a little bit more in there and talk us through who is the team? Like, who are your coaches? Who helps you with the mental preparation walk us through who your people are yeah of course so yeah I, like I, I i love that and the the fact that dara has taken on this project and i, I was delighted when he asked me to, to get involved with horizon tokyo because i love myself watching like I, I don't really particularly follow sport i much more prefer seeing what's going on in the background mm. and i i love the fact that Dara's done that so well and he's kind of gotten into the backstory of of all of us athletes and you kind of see some of the the good the bad and the ugly and also like I have some some strange hobbies that don't go hand in hand with athletics <laughs> yeah, which definitely I think the those. public are going to be shocked by but yeah. uh, 
yeah, it's all part part of normal life for me, really. But yeah, like my my uh, while I'm on the track, I'm on my own. I'm completely on my own. It's it's down to me what I do. But I very much so, um, if you like a, a a team player. I couldn't train on my own. I couldn't get to the level that I'm at on my own. I find it very difficult to try and maintain focus and and enjoyment completely on my own. So. I've uh, I I joined back in 2010. I joined the I was with Ferrybank Athletic Club back home, and that was my social sort of uh, you know my social outlet as well as for for training. And then when I moved up to Limerick for college, I joined Haley and Drew, my now coaches, and they had a really good setup up there in Limerick, um, a real professional sort of a a setup or a semi-professional setup where they had kind of high performance. And and even now they have high performance down to people who are training for, for all different levels, which is great. And I, I love coming to training because it's good fun. It's good crack. I enjoy the banter at training. And that's kind of what keeps me coming back. And it always has is that enjoyment. And I think if that enjoyment ever goes out of it for me, I'll find it very difficult to continue training. But yeah, so Haley and Drew are, are, are my coaches, my, my track coaches who've brought me up to the level that I'm at today. And then I have my gym coach, Tommy Cummins as well, who I've been working with for the last couple of years, and he's you know, even even now when I'm away, he's on the phone to me every couple of days. You know, I'm getting on and what I'm doing with regards training and writing sessions and stuff. And then my uh, my physio Emma, who because of COVID, obviously I haven't been able to see her as much this year, but she's been kind of I've been working with her for for nearly eight nine years at this stage, and uh, she's been a vital part of kind of because I've had my fair share of injuries. <laughs> And uh, she's helped me through pretty much every single one of them and has always been there, you know, to kind of offer reassurance when things are going pretty uh, badly that, you know, we'd come out the other end of it. And um, I've had a, my, I, again, I haven't seen James, my massage therapist, in a, in a, about a year now either because uh, of, of COVID, but we've been managing. But he's um, he's been a vital part as well in keeping me kind of, keeping the body ticking over and uh, giving me a dig out every now and again to keep the muscles a little bit, that little bit subtle. So Let me, I've uh, really... Really good team built up over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's obviously not a one-man band, and that, yeah. that's always the thing that people seem to get get forgotten. In that we just watch it and we just think, "Jesus, that Tom Barr is unreal." But you know, you're in your own head that you know it's it's your ability to work with people and you know draw from their knowledge and mm. then apply it. Is, is what, like at the end of the day, you are the one applying it. But I was interested to hear there that, you know, there isn't a performance coach a la somebody working on the psychological and mental side of the game, particularly when I know how hard you prepare in your mind mental rehearsals of these races. Yeah, I don't. I actually, I have... The option of going to a sports psychologist with with Sport Ireland, there is that option there. My sister Jessie is actually working with Sport Ireland as a sports psychologist now since she's retired from athletics herself, and uh, like it's often joked that I could, uh, you know, I could work with her, but I don't know. <laughs> I think this is, it's just I don't know if I'd be able to take her fully seriously with 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 problems all the time. Like, ah, come on, Jessie. Um, but uh, yeah, it it is an avenue I haven't really tapped into myself yet. But like my parents, my my parents have always been there for me when for, for me, when times are tough, that's when I really need that sort of mental sort of an emotional support. And it's usually my mom that I would turn to there 
just to keep my head on the straight and narrow. I'm very independent. I like to try and get things, get through things myself, you know, pick up the pieces, find, find you know, I'm very much in, in fight or flight. I'll try and fight my way out. I, I won't give up too easily. I'm stubborn. But that we, with that stubbornness kind of comes a determination not to give up. And when I do find that 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 kind of determination is starting to dwindle, um, it's normally my mum that I would that I would turn to there and, and she'd pick, pick me back up and give me a kick, basically, hmm. to, to only focus on what I can control. And, and that's something that I always try and reiterate to myself if, if things aren't going great, is that while I might have a plan, plans can change and that's OK. Like that, you know, only control what you can control and, and try and take the positives from everything. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's when things are going well, it's it's very easy to get your mental state in in the right place and try and you know get just keep yourself on track. It's it's when things aren't going well, like when I was injured, or when performances aren't really coming. That's when it's it is tough. It is an item of conversation, isn't it, at the moment? And that's why I do really appreciate you taking the time to do this because when that Naomi Osaka moment came up, where we were kind of brought into the idea that. When athletes do press, it's actually quite a dangerous thing for them. I actually remember Mm -hmm. talking to Andy Lee while he was an active fighter and regretting some of the questions because I was like, have I planted a seed of doubt there in asking that question? Did I cross a line with the best will in the world through my own curiosity into something that he didn't need to think about? To me, a lot of the Naomi Osaka thing was her expressing how fragile her headspace was and that she maybe doesn't have that resilience and toughness for whatever reasons that you're describing there. Are you conscious of that, though? Did that, did, what did you make, first of all, of the Naomi Osaka situation? And what's your view when you find yourself in a press interview where they're kind of bringing up things where you're like, I don't want that in my head. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's, do you know what, it's a really, I often don't feed into or think into much, you know, around the media, I'm, I'm not very, you know, active or social on the likes of Twitter, where there's a lot of news feed and, and a, lot, a lot of news kind of floating around. And I don't really get too involved in that. Like I do all of my, my press and media things. And, and I quite enjoy them. Like it's, uh, even when I, if, if I'm throwing a, a bit of a, a spanner of a question, I don't really, I try not to shy away from it. Because it's interesting for people who aren't in the sport. It can be interesting to hear an actual athlete's per- perspective. And you just have to be careful not to say something that can land you in hot water. But when I did get thinking on it then with the whole Naomi Osaka thing was, it is like people I think do forget that athletes are only human. We go to training, you know, we started out probably in a local club. And then just ended up being really good at what we do. And what we do is we run or we jump or we, you know, we compete. We're not trained for the media. We aren't, we aren't robots that, and, and we aren't, um, you know, big PR machines that know exactly what to do. We haven't really, most of us haven't had official media and press training. It's not something that, like I'm quite introverted now. It might not come across a lot of the time in interviews, but I am quite introverted and I don't really, you know, I, I'm not the most comfortable. I've just gotten used to it, having a microphone in front of me. And I just know that, you know, that that what I say, I just have to be careful of. And if you are in a negative headspace, it can be very difficult where it's almost like a firing squad sometimes where you have, you know, you're just after coming out of a race or you could be doing a press conference and, and people are asking you, what's gone wrong? 
or what's going wrong. And at that stage, you, you don't know. You don't even know yourself. And you're trying to come to terms with it. And now, luckily, I, I genu- generally try, I don't give in to my emotions too much. So, And I try to stay kind of practical and pragmatic. So it, it kind of comes naturally that when the microphones are in front of me, I, I will try and answer the best I can. But there have been times when I've come out of a race, I've faced that that kind of... Um, barrage of questions where things have not gone right or when I've been expected to do well and I had no answers and I just tried to you know get it out of the way and then nearly completely broke down after that not everybody can do that you know if if people are being pushed and pressed it can be very difficult and you don't want to show that vulnerability either in the public like it's it's like if you have a bad day at work you're say for example you're working in an office or you're working on a construction site and you've had a terrible day or after breaking a computer or you you've let people down and as soon as you come out of work, there's 10 people standing there, your bosses and the media, and they're going to post it all over social media about how bad of a day you've had. That, you know, it doesn't happen like that for, for the general person. And it's, it's, it's that same kind of analogy where we've just tried to do the best on, on our day's work. We don't go out there to try and fail. We don't go out there to try and, you know, uh, t- to not do our best. So it can be difficult in those times. So yeah, I, I think it was it was a very thought provoking kind of a, a piece where, especially at the moment, where I think people's mental health is has become very um, to the forefront of the media and and very topical. And I think it's it really is delving into that fact that you know athletes, people, we're only people at the end of the day, and everybody is only human. There's only so much that that people can take, and it can be very difficult when it's all thrown at the thrown at you, yeah. and, uh, and it's all going to be published in the. In the papers the next day. Yeah, I mean, it feels like there's a bit of a re-examination going on of what we're entitled to or what we feel entitled to from our athletes, whether it's a cricketer who does a, a silly tweet as a kid who's now, you know, kicked off the team because of something he did when he was a, a teenager and didn't, should have yeah. done better. Or Naomi, where it's like, we're entitled to ask you these questions as part of your well-paying job. I, yeah. I feel like there's a big unfairness part to Irish people. The unfairness gene uh, k- <laughs> yeah. kicks in pretty hard when we're, we're like, there, that I'm sure that you felt this, that when you were put in front of those mics and your honesty came out or your emotions started to show that where is it? another country, I won't name names, might go, Oh, toughen up! I think there's a little more understanding from the Irish sporting public. Yeah. Would you feel that? I would a hundred percent agree with you. I think we're a very um, we're we're quite a an emotional and we're a sound bunch, and we kind of have that bit of understanding, which definitely helps. Like I know that's not the case in other countries. And the thing is, like you say, there, like I think what comes with now it's something that it's just it's it's because i've been in it for so long i have experience kind of built up that it's just one of those things that if you are asked to do a press conference or you have to do media days or you know with um with things to do with sponsors you know it, it there it does come there is a responsibility that comes with that and i think that people enjoy sport because there are those stories there is that you know there's the the stories that go around there's the questions that come after there's the the media that's that's portrayed around people like following sports and and getting enjoyment and excitement out of it or getting to criticize it or whatever and that's fine and 
And I think that that's just part and parcel of the job of being a sports person as well. But there are going to be times when you don't want it to be part and parcel of the job. Yeah, well, we, we really don't know what the hell we're watching even with you, Tom. Like so much of your event, like if you asked... <laughs> anyone on my street right now to clear two hurdles and run in between them like they'd have a difficult job doing that much but equally i i would imagine that when you started showing potential as a as an athlete as a youngster if we're to go right back when did the prospect of running one full lap, clearing these hurdles along the way, start to become attractive? And why weren't there other events that were more attractive to you? Oh, there were definitely other events that were more attractive, but I tried them and I was crap at them. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, it, it was kind of, I had tried everything else and I thought, right, I'll give this 400 hurdles a go. I had an all right hurdling technique. I wasn't fast enough for the shorter hurdles. I didn't want to really do the mileage that came with like middle distance or long distance and I was like, ah, I'll give this one a go. And, uh, yeah, you know, I started, I was a high jumper for a long time, for a few years when I was growing up. And, and I kind of reached my peak, or uh, I was stuck at a certain height, I think like 185 or so, 186, and I couldn't get any higher than that. And everyone else was jumping higher. So I was like, right, try something else here. When I was younger, in fairness, my parents were very um, encouraging. Like I tried out every sport I could. And every event that I could. And I stuck with athletics mainly for the social side of things. I enjoyed it the most and, and made a lot of my friends from athletics. Mm. And yeah, tried out all the events. 400 hurdles, kind of stuck with it. I got a little bit of success. Nothing major really at a young age up until about 17, 18. And then moved to college. And it was kind of when I moved on then. That was when uh, my my talent sort of started to uh, unwind, if you like. Well, it's it's nearly the opposite for most everyone else, mm-hmm. right? They go to university, they discover the drink, and yeah. <laughs> all the wheels come off. Uh, UL is obviously, uh, you know, it's a powerhouse of athletics excellence. There's no two ways about it. People go there and they get to focus and they tend to draw the best out of themselves. What is it about the place, do you think, that that did that for you? Because clearly, as you say, it, it wasn't headed the way the way you are right now until you get there. That's a hundred percent. I was. Do you know what? And and I did. I did waver when I did move to college, like most people do. I wanted to go out three nights a week with my friends. I wanted to get involved in other clubs and societies other than athletics, because athletics was still. While I wasn't at a very high level, it still took six days of training or five days of training and a lot of discipline, and you know, not going out, staying up late, and you know, mm. not going out drinking and or as often as I would have liked, maybe. And it, it did come with all those sacrifices that I felt, you know what, I'm, I don't know if I'm getting the results here. So it did waver. And I, I had a conversation with my parents that I wanted to give up. I, I, I made the decision myself. But they kind of, my dad always had this idea. And I was like, he's mad that he had this idea that I had a talent that I didn't know I had. And I was just like, I don't know where he'd seen this, to be honest. But they said, look, just train for one more year under... Haley and Drew and see how you get on or train for one year see how you get on their coaching Jesse had moved to them first up in Limerick and really thrived underneath them and me and Jesse were very similar athletes growing up we're both long tall lanky kind of runners and she said they worked for Jesse give it a go Haley's hurdle coaching is second to none so I said okay 
kind of out of a fear to say no to my parents and also the respect for like they're after putting in a load of effort over the last couple of years to try and get me to competitions and everything I said I'll give it a year and they said look if you do that you've tried your best and that year I was at the European Junior Championships my first ever international and finished sixth and that was my turning point where I was like okay maybe dad was right I do have a bit of a flair for this but I think in UL like it's the campus is it's a really really open a cool campus first of all but they pump a lot of money into the sporting facilities they have a lot you know they really do try and pull out all the stops when it comes to the sports side of things and the sporting facilities like there's a 50 meter pool they have i couldn't even count how many 4g pitches now for every event which can be used in all weather we have a new track down there and they have a, a in in the last couple of years they've really developed the the sports scholarship system and i think you know people do seem to be drawn there for sport and it's kind of been coming a real sporting campus and has been for for years but uh, it just it does it has that it has a really good if you're into sport like Munster train down there Munster rugby are trained down there and it's got a really really good kind of professional sort of a sporting vibe down there which is mm. which is cool and when you're immersed in that sort of environment it's hard not to kind of get sucked in. Yeah, it's the uh, can't see, can't be type thing. Yes, that, exactly. You know, I sometimes wonder why so many kids drop out of sport. And a lot of people puzzle over that. But clearly it's the example, right? The just yeah. that this is this is potentially the next step for you. Having a sister like Jessie going in front of you, kind of whacking down the weeds on the way, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, making it clear that, you know, even just from a sibling rivalry point of view, that Jesus, if she can do it, I can. That 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 must be in your head a lot of the time. But I really wanted to ask, you know, that relationship with her and, you know, your friendship over the years, how has it been and has it always been healthy? Yeah, like Je- Jesse was the athlete in the house for for a long time and like you said she literally paved the way and made it so accessible and easy for me to just follow in in her footsteps because like in fairness when I was younger I didn't really you know pay much heed I was doing athletics because it was fun Jessie was going off to international competitions during the summer and and that was kind of that was cool that was her thing I supported her but like I didn't I had my own things going on. Like I, was, I had a summer job where I was hanging out with my friends and stuff and we all kind of did our own thing. And, and, and that was, you know, Jesse did the athletics and, and I did a bit of training and, you know, that was, that was kind of it. I did, there was no rivalry there. I wasn't sour over it. It was just the way it was. And then like I started to kind of come, come into my own then when I moved to, to college and uh, I started to see then, oh, I can kind of start to go to these competitions. But Jesse had done it all before she'd been there and I was like yeah Jesse's been there I can I can surely do that (laughs) you know it was just it made it very accessible without me having to do a huge amount of thinking there wasn't much you know it became very normal in that like oh yeah Jesse's been to the European Juniors sure I'll go I'm going to that that's cool that's the job but some Uh, some brothers and sisters have the relationship of I'll show I'll show them you know I'll think (laughs) that's good (laughs) wait till you see this and so many (laughs) like so many athletes that you know I speak to here and the biographies that you'll stumble across either had a bigger brother knocking the bollocks out of them in the back garden (laughs) (laughs) 
or a, a sister who is the apple of the parents eye uh, <laughs> which of those two things were you closer to with jesse uh, oh that's t- no she definitely was she wasn't beating the crap out of me anyway that's for sure <laughs> In, no i i think if we had been both female or both male mm. in the same event it would have been very different, I think, because yeah. we would have been directly comparable. Now, there was times where, like, it wasn't all roses and it wasn't all great, but because there were times where I would be running well. And it seemed to go in a year by year basis. And I, I feel bad for my parents because they were stuck in the middle where one of us would be running really well and one of us wouldn't. And they had to try and really manage that well. And <laughs> they would be happy for say for example happy for jesse when she's running well and then when i was running running terribly it had to be kind of that little bit like oh well look you know it's uh and try and manage that yeah. manage that and they did it very well uh looking back like at the time i didn't realize it but looking back now i i do realize that they managed uh extremely well more than uh we probably would have expected but yeah in, in general we we kind of went by if i had a good year jesse's year wasn't so great but it was good enough in that then the next year, Jesse would have a good year and then I'd have not so good a year. So we kind of took it in turns almost in, in, in a weird way. But while while there was always that sibling rivalry whereby, like, for example, Jesse finished, I think, sixth or seventh or fifth maybe in the European under 23s. And then a few years later, I finished eighth. So she got the one up there. And then I finished higher in a European senior championships or something like that. So it kind of it went back and forth. And it was just a bit of crack. It was a bit of banter. Like, in fairness, I didn't, I didn't think a huge amount on it. But that was really Jessie's scene. That was Jessie's identity. She was the athlete. She kind of uh, had paved the way. And I, I just was the younger brother that came, came in out of nowhere and just sort of threw, threw myself into it and started coming into her territory, really. And, and I can understand why that would have been very difficult for Jessie. But at the same time, she handled it extremely well and I never really got that vibe there were times when I kind of felt you know okay I, 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 I've, done, I've had a good year here now but I'm not going to gloat and we it, it was difficult at times between the two of us but we were always there for each other I can remember in we were both at a European Championships in I think it was Helsinki and it was the first major championships we were both at together and I remember Jesse hadn't had such a great run and I remember meeting her after the event and I don't think I even said anything, just just hugged her at the end of the event. And that was it. And it was just those sort of times where it was tough and having that familiar, friendly face, even if you, we didn't always see, you know, even if it was a bit of banter on the outside and, and, and stuff like that, we were still always there for each other. And we trained together every every day at training. Uh, and we were we, we've, we've been through thick and thin. We knew what we'd each of us had been through. And we had massive respect, I think, that we both put in that effort for one of the toughest events that is the 400 hurdles. So, well, yeah, we were always there for each other as well. Well, Tom, we've so much more to talk about. Uh, I want to get into the specifics of uh, creating <laughs> yeah. explosive power and, you know, hurdle technique. I want to talk about <laughs> this uh, road to Tokyo and, you know, all the controversy surrounding athletics itself and doping. We'll get to all of that and we'll say good luck to our listeners on SoundCloud and iTunes and come on over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and hear the rest of my conversation with Thomas Barr. 
So yes, as I said, there is another 40 minutes to this interview with Thomas Barr and it really it really goes a different direction in the next phase. Now that I have a chance to look back on it, we really get into an awful lot, including the funding of Irish sport, marginal gains, actually training for strength and power, his qualification for the 4x400 relay team, uh, the come down after big events, what his favourite cheat meal is and whether he, like me, geeks out over the sneakers that he gets sent every week by New Balance. We talk about his idols looking up, the people that inspired him, a couple of really unusual choices there on that one, and a lot more about the uh, temptation to leave Ireland for a better climate to train in, and why uh, that's never really been something that comes into his uh, view. We also we have to do it. We talk about doping and uh, how that affects his headspace when preparing for this Olympics. Head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Couple of clicks, you get a link, you paste that into your podcast app and then suddenly it populates with all of our episodes. You can select which ones you want to download and every single week you'll get the full extended cut of my interviews and three other weekly episodes, as I said, including the Irishman Running Abroad full cut episodes with Sonia O'Sullivan I'd love you to join up and allow us to keep making the show Brian Connolly's on sound John Marr does the extra research Tina and Mikey make it all possible and Jigsaw.ie are my chosen charity partner if you have a couple of extra quid this week head over there and pop it in the tip jar